I'm excited to introduce our guest for today, none other than Jimmy Song. Jimmy, thank you for joining us. How goes it? It goes well. I just came back from El Salvador teaching some people there Bitcoin programming. So it's good to be back home and yeah, here with you guys. Of course, I had to come back in town. I, I appreciate you cutting your trip to El Salvador short just to grace us with your presence. How was it, man? We saw some pictures. You were down there with Max and Stacy, and talk to us a little bit first about just what what's what does El Salvador feel like in a bear market? Well, it's interesting because, and this was something that I was telling Max and Stacy. I was there six months ago. Six months, things have changed. Like you can you can see things being built and stuff like that. There are like bike lanes there now, which weren't there before. They're like, yeah, they put this in last week. It looks really nice. Every everything is you know brand new, growing, going up, and you know things are building. And you you can just sort of see in the country that there's a lot more energy a lot more building. And it's what you would expect it to look like if it wasn't bogged down with, you know, different forms of oppression, I guess, whether it's the IMF or, you know, the M13 gangs and stuff like that. So you, you can kind of see it. As far as Bitcoin goes, you know, they're, they're, you can still pay for stuff in Bitcoin and it's it's pretty cool. I think there were a lot of people that, sort of expected it to become like a libertarian paradise overnight it's not quite that fast but i mean it's 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 becoming something pretty pretty quickly i like i like being there i was there to train some programmers because as you know we need more programmers and El Salvador needs more programmers. Yeah, it's it's interesting because like you don't get to see the day to day, but but when you visit, you can clearly see progress, and that's that's what I saw. You know, we hear a lot around this conversation that the people who most need Bitcoin today can't excuse me can't afford these eighty percent drawdowns. You've been to El Salvador before. They're now dealing with, you know, that 80% drawdown. I, I believe, don't quote me on this, but maybe it was around 40K when you were visiting. We're down in the low 20s right now. So even a 50% drawdown. Were there any concerns from El Salvadorians or was it still like, you know, this focus on let's continue to build this ecosystem and learn as much as we can while we can? Well, it's, I don't know if I'm the right person to ask because the people I tend to meet are very bullish on Bitcoin. So I, they're kind of kind of going to be self-selected. But the people I taught were very enthusiastic about Bitcoin and so on. So I wouldn't, I would say that, you know, as a, you know, the, there's still a lot of enthusiasm for it and there's a lot of people wanting to build. There's, you know, the, the government is still bullish on it and everything else. Uh, they're, they're taking care of some other problems first, namely the gangs. I think they've arrested something like 40,000 gang members and they're no longer sort of extorting money from like the pupusa vendor or whatever. And that's, that's a very good thing. It's, it's adding, you know, more money to people's pockets and getting rid of these sort of like extortionist slash rent seekers. I think it's a, a very interesting thing that, you know, a lot of Western news outlets will try to portray Bukele as this authoritarian leader when, when in fact, it seems like it's just trying to com combat corruption in his country. So remains to be seen how things pan out. Let's talk a little bit about just sort of. Wait, wait. I do just want to jump in, though. It's not necessarily that simple, though, right? I mean, he also has said he is the world's coolest dictator. And I think 
you know, there is a lot of, there are a lot of authoritarian things that he is doing and that he would very publicly say that he's doing. I mean, I, mean, I, I think the, I don't know I, if they're the, like fat authoritarian. I mean, putting gang members in prison is not authoritarian per se. That, 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 I mean, they're, these are people that are going up to like the food vendor on the sidewalk and extorting them for half their profits for the day. And, and those people absolutely should be, you know, tried and figured out. I mean, I, I would just will say that some of the videos that were coming out, like when that initially was happening, I'm again, huge fan of El Salvador. The World Economic Forum is absolutely trying to completely screw them over. And, you know, I think there's a lot of amazing stuff that, that BKL is doing, but some of those videos that when they first came out around the gangs were, were seemed chilling. You know, it was like everybody's sort of like at their, for being forced to crab, a crab walk and stuff. And it was weird. Yeah. I mean, they're going to take like the worst videos and make it seem like that's the norm and stuff like that. And that th this is the IMS playbook. You know, there, there was a whole thing about Pegasus and the journalists and stuff like that. You haven't heard that story anymore, right? The reason why you haven't is because they found out that some of Bukele's government officials also had Pegasus installed on them. So it wasn't the uh, it wasn't their government installing it. It's somebody else. We don't know who, but it's not it's not Bukele who's doing it. But, you know, everyone sort of automatically assumed that it was Bukele. And, oh, he's this dictator that's uh, keeping tabs on journalists. Actually, we have no idea who's keeping tabs on the journalists because it's not just them. It's like a bunch of. Bukele's friends that are that have the stuff installed on them. So I like there there's a lot of propaganda going around and the Absolutely. IMF is motivated to make them look as bad as possible. 100%. But I that's that's not what I saw. And and you know like be careful about like the news that you hear outside of El Salvador because most of the people that are pushing a particular narrative have an agenda. The Washington Post, New York Times, those places have a total agenda. Um, it, and it's to influence DC and the lawmakers and keep this narrative of dictator alive so that when they can, you know, essentially keep exploiting, because <laughs> think about it, like El Salvador has been exploited significantly you know like they're they're yeah. uh, like just some of the stuff that i learned for example they are only allowed to import beef from their free trade zone which is like the central american free trade zone i think it's el salvador nicaragua guatemala honduras and one other country which i can't remember but the, those are the only uh, they they have a free trade zone and then and but other than that if they want to import beef they have to do it from the u.s so Argentinian beef is great. It's grass fed, it's delicious and it's plentiful and it's cheap, but they can't import it because they have this weird trade deal with the U.S. And the U.S. can have these like very unfair sort of rules around stuff like that mm -hmm. and keep them continuing to be oppressed. And because of uh, sort of like the relationship that it's able to enforce through the IMF loans and stuff like that. They're finally kind of getting out from under it. And, you know, that this is kind of what happens. It's, it's you know, I mean, I, I like the beef that I ate there because it was mostly from Nicaragua. But I would love to eat like Argentinian beef. That's like yeah. notch stuff, you know, like why, why isn't that available? And that's not the only one. There's all sorts of stuff, particularly around food exports and stuff, which the U.S. totally takes advantage of. So. I mean, there, there's a reason why there there's this narrative of Bukele is a dictator. 
I will tell you, though, that there are 6 million people in El Salvador. There are 3 million outside of El Salvador, most of them in the U.S. And Bukele has as high or higher approval rating among the diaspora than he does at home. So that tells you something. That's yeah. that's not the case for, you know, Raul Castro or, you know, Chavez or whoever, you know, like it, it's that that's a very, very different thing. Absolutely. You know, I think also, and I don't want to go too into detail because I, I candidly, I'm admitting that, and maybe maybe this will hold me accountable. I'm trying to do some research on a potential article, but there was a big narrative about 20 years ago that the president of Singapore was this authoritarian leader who ought not to be trusted and we shouldn't be doing business with them. And, you know, if you had invested in Singapore and their growth 20 years ago, you would have made a very, very good bet. And I candidly think the IMF is running a very similar playbook against Bukele and El Salvador that fast forward in 10, 20, 30 years, people are going to be like, oh shit, El Salvador was a no brainer. Just like doing an investment in Singapore now. I mean, at this point now, Singapore is almost overdone. So I, I do think that there is a big narrative. There's that chart that Bloomberg posted of the 19 next countries that could default on their debt after what we saw out of Sri Lanka and top of the list is El Salvador. And I can't help but chuckle. I can't help but chuckle and think like, oh yeah. What, what debt are they defaulting on though? That's, that's the key, key difference. So if they default on the IMF debt, they, they actually can kind of afford to do that because then they can go and raise money using the volcano bonds. Um, and that, that, that may be the direction that they go in because IMF loans comes come with a lot of strings attached. You have to spend money a certain way. You can only put a certain percentage towards infrastructure, for example. And and for whatever reason, a lot of the leaders in countries that take IMF loans end up embezzling it. I, I think it has something to do with the fact that it's money from foreigners and they don't feel that bad about taking it from their from foreigners as opposed to their own people or something like that. But yeah, I, I mean... I, I wouldn't worry too much about, you know, stuff like that. It's uh, what, what you can see on the ground is clearly that they are building and you can you can see it. And it's like beautiful. I, I was commenting to Max and Stacy, like this hotel that we stayed at, that whole neighborhood, if you walk around, you couldn't tell the difference between that and like, you know, a suburb of, of the United States or like, you know, LA or something like that. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Like it, it's well manicured. Every, like maybe the Chinese embassy has razor wire at the top, something like that. But uh, other than that, like everything is like growing and that that's the best evidence I, I saw that whatever they're doing is working. Now, is it authoritarian? It, it really depends what you mean by that. Cause in a sense, the the things that people complain most about are with respect to civil liberties. But I mean, like gangs that are extorting people—that's that's not really civil liberties. I mean, the the things that usually the people in the U.S. are complaining about are related to like, uh, okay, well, these M13, you know, gang members, you know, they're not given you know, perfect due process or something like that, rather than, okay, like these guys were like harassing all of these, you know, street vendors and taking, you know, half their wage every day. And 
now it's now they're you know able to keep their full wage like th- those are those are good things like it, it, if you want to call that call getting rid of criminals like authoritarian it it just seems kind of ridiculous to me well to be honest like it's it's beautiful when you put it like that but jimmy let's think about this for a second Mm-hmm. While these criminals are doing that to the individual citizens, how is that any different than the way the IMF is doing that to the country itself with the way they're forcing them to, to hey, you have to pay us in this certain way and do these certain things. And if you don't, like we hold you by the balls. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of is. It's just that the, there's no real recourse after that. There's no higher authority to appeal to, basically. And this is kind of the problem is the U.S. is the dominant. It's the equivalent of the Supreme Court or whatever. It's, you know, their decision, it's final and that's it. And that's that's what that's the situation we have. And, you know, it's it's going to take some time. But I, I think El Salvador is on its way to like actually like growing and doing some good things. And it'll be interesting to see if the other Central American countries follow because I mean, certainly people in Guatemala are very interested. I'm, I'm sure people in Nicaragua, Honduras, Costa Rica, they're, they're all watching. And if this volcano bond thing goes through, which, uh, you know, who, who knows when it's going to happen, but I suspect somewhere around the one year anniversary, which is around so, September, you know, they're, they're going to have cash without the IMF's assistance, in which case then, okay, now, now they can actually go build stuff without needing to stay strictly in the lane of the international monetary order. Was there anything that this trip surprised you or stood out in comparison to the last time you went? Well, I I didn't stay very long. I, I literally flew there Sunday and came back yesterday. So it was like, and two of those days I was just straight up teaching the whole time. So I, I didn't really get to go out or anything. But, you know, the the biggest things were mostly just kind of visual. Just yeah, things just look safer. I don't know. Like it looks more beautiful. Think things are building. Th- those are the those are the things that st- stood out to me. And now, I mean, granted, I stayed in like sort of like a posh area of San Salvador, but you can kind of see it everywhere. It's uh, everything everyone is building everyone is doing more stuff because the bad guys are out i don't know and uh, and you know what what the president there is doing is making a difference you know now that you're back in america how how disappointed are you how much do you just come back here like god damn it i'm back to the same old shit nothing changed <laughs> well i i'm i'm optimistic because of bitcoin i mean i i wrote about this in the in the article this week it's you know there if you have Bitcoin, you have this like sort of hope, right? Because you're you're not on the rat race treadmill, whatever, and instead you 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 have the space to think about life a little more deeply and try to accomplish something that's meaningful, rather than hey, let's just go after what everyone else is going after, which is essentially rent seeking positions, and that that's that's a good thing. I don't know. I, I'm not really disappointed per se ever with Bitcoin because the people that attack Bitcoin, they it, it's pretty obvious to me that they are, you know, affinity scammers or whatever. I, I don't need or want their approval in any way, shape or form. The people in the fiat world, I, I don't want, need or 
you know, want their approval either. It's I, I feel like I have a different sort of mindset than a lot of other people because there's this thing called Bitcoin I and I have savings. So I don't have to think about, okay, how can I make rent this month or how do I make sure I'm progressing in my career in the next year that is in line with my colleagues or something like that. I, I don't have to do any of that. I, I can just continue to focus on the long-term things. For me, that's bringing sound money to the world and that's Bitcoin. I, I can think about, okay, well, how can I best achieve that? How do I, how do I influence things to go in that, in that direction? Certainly like training developers in El Salvador is a small step in that direction, but it's something that I can do that, that maybe not that many people can. So I, I like thinking about those things and building things for the long term. And I think a lot of other Bitcoiners are as well. And that's, that's, you know, what gives me optimism is, is that at least in this community, you know, I, a lot of my friends in the Bitcoin community, like they're, they're thinking, okay, how do I make sure that I leave a legacy so that like, you know, my Bitcoin turns into like, you know, a family that has generational wealth, you know, we, you know, my name, my last name can be like the Rockefellers or something from, you know, a hundred years ago. I mean, not like the corrupt parts, but, you know, just the, the fact that they're able to last and leave legacies and stuff like that. You know, th those are things I, I, I think are more meaningful. And I, I, I don't know, it's, it's not depressing to me, at least. Fair, fair. I always just love going and seeing other cultures in other parts of the world and the country. I digress though. I think you, while you were in El Salvador, we were actually having this conversation. Yeah, we had it here on Bitcoin Magazine. I was like, did we have it on Bitcoin Magazine Live Spaces? Well, we were kind of, we talked about this idea of like, you know, the narrative that was fed to, to my generation that, you know, your generation and the generation before UP's generation was feeding, saying like, you know, you can, be anything you want to be and the idea of like dreams and just how you know unfortunately everyone just wanted to be a fucking pro athlete or a fucking famous a movie star or a tiktok star and then lo and behold i think it was james lavish was quoted the other day or no it was luke groman saying that there were more people more individual human beings drafted into the major league in major league baseball's draft then graduated with a chemical engineering degree last year. Like that's how far we've kind of fallen. And, and I think that actually feeds into a little bit of a little bit of what you talked about in your most recent piece, how replacing reality with fiat falsehoods destroys meeting. And just the idea of like, where's our purpose coming from and what, what is real from the, the figments of our imagination that we've created. Mm. Yeah, and, and it, it was it was a fun piece for me to write because it, it sort of like conglomerated a lot of the other things that I've been writing about. And I realized like a, a lot of the values that we get taught are not from family anymore as much as it is fiat education. So you're taught what to believe and how to behave and what's good and what's bad from school, right? Like you're, you're told, okay, you know, th this is what you know, being a good citizen means rather than here's who you are as a member of this family. That that used to be a much stronger part of your identity. It's, it really has 
sort of like equalized and or diminished over the years where people don't identify with their family so much as maybe the school that they graduated from and that that's more their identity and it gives sort of like a flavor of what you might believe and so on and it it's it's very uniform it's very conformist it's very sort of statist and emphasizing compliance to the state something like that rather than i think a family identity which is way more based on loyalty and love and you know family identity if you will which tend to be a lot uh stronger as an identity because you know you first of all you share a lot of genes and stuff like that so it's a uh, there there's sort of like a, a biological component to your identity that's not necessarily there when you're you know graduating from a class it's it's not like ideological as or it could be but like you know there there's sort of like a physical biological component to your identity within family that that's kind of missing in fiat education and in, in our sort of like haste to make everything equal we've kind of removed a lot of meaning and it's been taken over by the fiat system to essentially make everyone like drones or something you know like very compliant cogs in the fiat system you know that fiat companies and fiat politics all, all of those sort of like are the versions of things that we're supposed to get meaning out of and really all all three of those are very empty they're mostly around compliance or rent seeking or you know getting artificially outraged or something like that and those are not really good sources of meaning because what's there today is gone tomorrow they're they're all very short term very high time preference things whereas you know you know family community religion like the, those have actually created things that have lasted a very long time and it's it's much easier to get meaning out of those because you're contributing something to something that's bigger than yourself that isn't going away right like that that that's a that's a very important and thing for most people and you know writing about it and seeing how it's related to all of these other things it 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 led down to like this idea of the basement the idea that you know fiat money is the base money and fiat meaning is the base meaning fiat education is the base education fiat you know companies are the base communities and you know fiat philosophy is essentially the base religion it it's it's very you know it it removes sort of like the meat or the 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 really valuable parts and leaves you with sort of like the husk or something and that that that's what i think most people find so unsatisfying about modern life how much like and i don't mean to harp on this but i have a big belief that the way our education system is designed it's designed to create these thoughtless robots that just complete tasks at hand without really thinking through what needs to get done. How much do you attribute things like our public public education system to feeding and perpetuating the fiat system to then grow into exactly this, like thoughtless people who just sort of do what they're told to do because that's what you've done your whole life? Mm. Yeah, it, it, and it's actually even worse than what you say because 
it's not just about compliance to the state. It's it's giving you sort of like trinkets to go after. So, you know, if you're in high school, what do you want to do? You want to get into a good college, maybe an Ivy League college, maybe Harvard, right? Like, and then once you get into Harvard, what do you want to do? Well, you want to get to the next thing. What's the next thing? Well, it's an investment banking job at Goldman Sachs right out of college. Or, you know, maybe you go to law school and try to get a position at a top tier law firm. Or maybe you go to med school and get into a really prestigious residency program. And, you know, I mean, like these, it's, it's not just like meaningless cogs in a wheel. It's cogs that appear meaningful, but once you achieve them, they they really have very little meaning. And it's just sort of like this filtering mechanism. And it's, it's based not on its intrinsic meaningfulness, but because of an artificial scarcity that is created by fiat money, right? Like we have very abundant money, so you have to have scarcity elsewhere. And it's in, you know, the number of doctors in the country, for example. I I don't know if you know this, but the number of doctors that come in every year. So there's always like retirements and deaths and stuff like that. So a bunch of doctors go away from the market. The number of new doctors that come in, that's entirely controlled by the American Medical Association. They decide exactly how many new doctors are that are going to be. And they they represent the you know, group of doctors that already exist. So what are they going to do? Well, they're going to make sure that every doctor that comes in has or that there isn't a saturation of extra doctors. Instead, there's just enough to cover everybody because they don't want any doctor to go out of business. Of course, that's like a horrible incentive because in a sense, like if you have a bad doctor, like it, it's kind of hard to get rid of them and there isn't as much competition. And, you know, you, we think about why healthcare is so messed up. That's part of it. It's, if everybody got to be a doctor that wanted to be a doctor, this would be a very different market. But that's not the case. It's it's a monopoly controlled by a single entity. So you have this sort of like artificial scarcity created by the fiat system at all levels, whether it's college or, you know, fiat companies or these extraordinary like achievement things. And the ironic thing is like the people that get them feel so proud that they have, right? Like the the PhD from Harvard or whatever, it's considered super prestigious or whatever, but like most of those are actually like the most rent seekiest of the rent seekiest. And like, they probably have tremendous amounts of ability, but it's being channeled towards these fiat games rather than to the market with entrepreneurship and stuff. Like you, you have all this talent and you're, you're going to spend it like, doing postdoc after postdoc and academia rather than like trying to invent something that might be useful to the market. Like this is, this is why the fiat system is, has been so, you know, draining to, to everything. It, it, It sucks the creativity and energy and life out of almost everything, including the very people that it's supposed to help it, 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 through fiat education and fiat companies and fiat politics and everything else just like demotivates them tremendously, puts the wrong incentives in front of them and makes them play games that really people don't want to play, right? Politics. And, you know, I mean, if you're, if you're an academic, you're, you're writing grant proposals all the time. You're, you're spending like, you know, many months writing a freaking grant proposal rather than doing the thing you love, which is, you know, 
trying to figure out, uh, expand the limits of human knowledge. I, that, that, this is, and if you're, if you're in a company, if you're a coder in a company, I can't tell you how many times I had to be in useless meetings, not getting to actually code or write software. It's, it's, you know, arguing about what features we should have and whatever. It, I mean, th this is what fiat things do is it sucks the life out of them. You mean to tell me that staff meeting that could have very easily just have been a meeting or an email that that's a good use of your time, effort, and energy? <laughs> I fucking used to hate that. I actually like sidetrack a little bit, but like in, in my fiat days and my fiat career, like it was honestly before COVID, attendance in the office was mandatory for 99% of jobs. And I remember once I became an agent and you kind of, you now had access to your computer out of the office. I got my laptop set up to where, I, okay, now I can access like the softwares that we use in the office on my personal laptop. And there were a couple of days where I just got pulled into all these meetings on the other side of LA. And I was like, dude, I can either drive back into the office or I can just start working remotely. And my bosses signed off on it. And then there, there were days where I would just go home at two and I would just work from home. And the first day, the first day I just worked out of the office, I'm rolling calls with my assistant and it's like 4.30 and I'm like, wait, did we just finish everything for the day? And she was like, yeah. Like at, at this point, you've actually made calls and done stuff that are supposed to be done next week. Like we're going ahead. And I'm like, See, this is what happens when I don't have everyone like swinging by the office, asking like, "Hey, like, how's Bitcoin doing?" Or like, "Who should I start on my fantasy football team?" It's like, "Fuck, I get so much more shit done when no one's around here trying to fucking talk to me." But apparently, that didn't mesh well with the company culture and the environment. It was very much like a, "Hey, don't work, work hard, but don't work too hard to where you make everyone look bad." Mm. Fucking stupid ass, dumbass. I'm still salty. Yeah, I mean, and you kind of should be because uh, I mean that 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 sort of sucks the life out of you, right? Like when 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 you have these like political things that you have to deal with, it, it like drains all motivation from like uh, your normal work, the the actual productive work that you ought to be doing. And the, this is the fiat disease. It's because of the presence of the money printer, because of the Cantillon effects, politics just becomes way more important. And, you know, entire companies are sustained by sort of political maneuvering and so on. So, I mean, think about like every airline. You know, I wrote about that a, long, a, a while ago. But they, they've all gone bankrupt multiple times. The only reason they exist is because of government subsidies. But that's also why they're so poorly run and why we have all these delays. Like I, I flew back yesterday. We had a three hour delay and, and the flight attendant told us what happened. And it was like one bureaucratic mess after another. The, it was delayed three hours because the plane that was supposed to get to San Salvador couldn't take off. And the reason why it couldn't take off from Miami was because the pilot seat spring was broken, so they had to replace the entire seat. Now, I, I'm not a pilot, but I think you can fly with the spring and maybe maybe fix that overnight instead of like delaying everybody. But that's what they had to do. And then they found another issue. There was like a dent in one of the propellers. I get well, not not the, it's a jet engine, so it's a it's a metal part that had a dent, so they had to replace that. But that wasn't the problem. I mean, they, they should do that, of course.
first. The The problem was that they filled out the paperwork on how they completed it incorrectly. So that caused another hour delay. And then at that point, the pilot had worked some like 15 hours in a row. So they they there's like some regulation that says you can't work more than 17 and the flight would have taken two hours. So like it would have gone over the limit. So they had to call in another pilot that took an hour. And then there were flight attendant union rules, which said that you can't work so many hours in a row. And two of the flight attendants would have worked too many hours in a row. So they, they had to be flown back according to the union rules and they had to get... So all of that took like three hours and it wasted a whole bunch of time because of all the fiat regulation stuff, right? Like, and this, this sort of stuff is so typical of anything fiat related. It's all political. There are sort of like kind of weird rules that waste a lot of time and things like that. And that, that, that's, that's kind of what it came, comes to. It's a, it's a sad state and it drains all meaning it drains life it drains like motivation it's it's no wonder people are depressed you're like you you get stuck in like a sort of weird red tape and you stay in sort of like a you, you get into more and more of a kafka-esque world it, it's you know it gets very depressing Let, let's keep diving down these rap, rabbit holes like you, you brought some sort of parallels to, I want to be careful how I say this before YouTube shuts down our account, a European quote unquote power that came to be in the 30s into the 40s that was maybe the enemy of World War II and draw some parallels to what they did to what some of the decisions, not all of the decisions, just some of the decisions the US government is making. Can we unpack this a little bit and, and, and dissect that? Just what, I mean... Essentially, what the U.S. is becoming is it's becoming more of a centrally planned economy, and and we're we're going in that direction. And you know, typically this is called socialism, and this is from Karl Marx, who said that after capitalism there would be socialism, and after socialism there would be communism. And you know, socialism is usually understood to be like the USSR or something like that. But actually, there's that's just the leftist version of socialism. There's you know politically right versions of socialism, which a lot of people call fascism, but it's the same. It's it's government control of corporations rather than like direct government control of everything, which is more the leftist version. And you know, honestly, that that was what Nazi Germany did. That's what a lot of other countries did. And, you know, U.S. tends to go more in that direction. You don't need to look much further than the healthcare system. There's a whole bureaucracy that that is, you know, health insurance that and these are, you know, there's like six giant conglomerates that control most of it. And they, they're like sort of a tax that you have to pay if you want health care at all. Or even if you don't need health care, you still have to pay them. It's 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 this very, very strange system. And it, it's set up that way because it's it's a form of central planning. And that's that's unfortunately the direction that the US has been going in ever since 1971, or even before that, I guess the beginning of the Fed and so on. Used to be very much that each state could determine what they wanted to do. Now it's all so centrally controlled that you know, like Caitlin Long has to sue the, you know, the Fed to get a banking license. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. This is, 
this is what central banking, central plan economies look like. And, you know, uh, the more I write these articles, the more I realize like every one of these, it's like, okay, this is exactly what Soviet Russia did or communist China did. <laughs> and it's, and they're spinning it as a good thing. It, it's just so strange because it's so obvious that it doesn't work, but we keep trying it. What is going on, my fellow Bitcoiners? Today's podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, BitMEX. If you've been in the Bitcoin space for longer than a week, then you probably already know BitMEX is one of the OG crypto derivatives exchange and one of the biggest supporters of Bitcoin in the last decade. What you might not know is that BitMEX is launching a brand new spot exchange on the 17th of May to easily buy and sell Bitcoin and crypto. To celebrate, they're giving away $1 million in crypto to spot traders over the next few months, and they want you to be a part of it. The Bitcoin Magazine crew had the privilege of meeting their team a few months back, and they think that this is the start of something special for BitMEX and their users. Sign up at BitMEX.com today to catch a slice of the $1 million in crypto giveaway and stay tuned to our podcast for future product offerings from their team. Again, don't miss out on the giveaway. Free sats are the best sats. Sign up at BitMEX.com today. How, like, on a scale to just, actually, I'll simplify it. On a scale of one to 10, like current laws and regulations in place in the US, how socialist are we? 10 being the leftist paradise of the USSR and one being communist China. Wait, I don't know if that's actually both, a fair scale. The, that, that's the, not the right the scale. Both ends of the scale are like super socialist. So you're right. You're right. I, I retract. One being the free market, pure capitalist market that we do not actually have. <clears throat> Sorry, did I get put bias in that? Yeah. So I, I I would probably put it at like seven. It's it's pretty controlled economy, and we don't have anything like the anarcho-capitalist libertarian paradise that that I think would be a one or something like that. And we're not anywhere near it. I, maybe like 1880s, 1890s, we were like four or five, three or four, somewhere around there. But right right now, it's 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 gone way more towards socialism. Yeah, and that's that's it's we're we're nowhere near that. What what are things that you are keeping an eye on out of any government officials, whether it's federal, state level, or local, that would be a step towards that number 10. Well, when are, when, um, the, when are, when are Jimmy's warning, warning flight lights and sounds going to go off? Yeah. Universal basic income, universal healthcare, universal housing, a CBDC. Yeah. I, mo most thing, whatever you're getting for free, it's going to require a lot of coercion in order to get right. So, you know, if you have free healthcare, for example, or, or you, you, you know, the government says you have a right to healthcare. Well, that means that somebody has to provide that service. How are you going to force them to provide it? especially if you don't have enough labor. And th this is what every country with like a socialized medicine ends up being is they don't have enough doctors or they're not paying them or it's all centrally controlled. So the doctors are always like, what, what the heck and not getting paid enough. So they'll move to the US ironically enough because they could get paid more. Why, why would you stay in a country that's not paying you very well and 
where you, you're essentially forced to work for a wage that's not really voluntary. There, there's coercion involved whenever you're giving stuff out for free. And that's the other side of the equation that I think a lot of people don't realize. And the thing is, it, these things aren't free anyway. I don't know if you remember during COVID, but it was, oh, all, all these people that are not taking vaccinations, they should, they should, you know, like we shouldn't let them into emergency rooms. We shouldn't treat any of their wounds and we shouldn't give them any health care. It's like, yeah, this is exactly how free stuff becomes like a mode of compliance is if you don't do what we say, we're going to take stuff away that is supposed to be free. And I, I don't know if I told this story on, on, on the show or not, but it's probably worth telling again. I, I was talking to Taeyong Ho, the North Korean defector, and, and I was asking him, hey, what, what, how did North Korea come into, or how did Kim, Kim Il-sung like, consolidate all this power? He said, just gave stuff away for free. That's what he did. You know, At first it was healthcare, then a guaranteed job and housing, everything else. And he gave, them, he gave it all away for free. And... Of course, in order to build all that stuff, you have to draft everybody and everyone became essentially a government employee. And at that point, it was, OK, well, you know, you can have free housing, but you have to do what the regime says. And if you don't follow our rules, then we're going to take your house away. We're going to throw you into a prison camp or something. And that that's the, that way lies tyranny. And if you're talking about stuff like universal basic income, well, who, who's, you, it's clear who's benefiting, but who's hurting? Well, it's everybody else that gets diluted as a result of all that money that got printed or the people that got taxed to pay for it. And that, that, that's where coercion comes in. You can't give away free stuff unless you take it from somebody else or you coerce somebody else into providing that service. So that for me is the biggest indicator of the march towards the communist socialist way of government and that's not a happy place to be and you know ask anyone that lived through communism it, it it's it's not good in any way shape or form so yeah that that would be my major indicators but yeah it, it's all the it, it always comes with sort of like good sounding rhetoric don't you want health care for everybody don't you want everyone to have their own house it's like yeah, those are good things, but who's providing them? <laughs> that, that, that's the thing. If Unless you can conjure it out of thin air, which you can't, you're either stealing from somebody or you're forcing somebody to do it, you can't do that. And, and you have to look at the other side of the equation. And if you're not taking that into account, then you might be a socialist. I'm not feeling spicy enough to bite. <laughs> <laughs> but but I want to I, I do want to touch on and and maybe ask you just sort of you know we had a long conversation with CK yesterday about this idea that you know Bitcoin succeeding has it can either fully succeed or it will fail where it sits right now in this sort of like middle, maybe along with all the other crypto bullshit and gold is still being talked about. And then you have fiat just running rampant. It won't exist in this ecosystem forever, but it can really only exist in an ecosystem where it is the ultimate thing or it just fails utterly. I want to focus on the, when it actually comes to coming into power, 
you know, one of the things we talked about yesterday was this idea that in the fiat system, people hide so much wealth in their houses. Mm. And, you know, the idea that he continued to push that I don't necessarily agree with is, you know, the cost of housing will become much cheaper as a result of moving off of this fiat standard and moving on to a more Bitcoin oriented world. Do you agree with that type of sort of through line that, you know, housing in general can become more affordable once you remove, once we remove ourselves off of this fiat standard? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, you don't, you really don't need to look further than like a place like Vancouver or New York or Toronto or something like that. Large number of those houses were bought by Chinese people that are trying to store their wealth. If you remove more that demand, that like store of value demand, and they're, they're buying it because they don't think their cash is going to hold their value, whereas real estate is. If you remove that demand, then of course, if, like the price drops, right? And you know, you don't, you probably don't have nearly the supply either. But but you know, like it'll be a lot more affordable. What one of the things about real estate though that uh, that really rankles me is just how regulated it is, but at the same time, how sort of like cheaply everything is made. And this is something that I touched on in the fiat real estate piece. But so so much of the real estate right now is like not built for permanently. I mean, it's, you know, you look at medieval stuff, it's, you know, a lot of that stuff has lasted because they built it out of stone. You know, the, the homes that we live in, you know, it's going to last maybe 25 years and then it's going to be, you know, crushed because somebody wants like a newer designer thing. It's kind of like wasted work, right? Like if, if you can have a house that can last 100 years, all the rebuilding, all those materials and stuff can go towards something else and build something cooler. And we're not really like expanding technology or anything like that. We're, I mean, maybe there's a little bit on the 3D printing side or whatever, but uh, but you know, because of this artificial demand of real estate, there's not really that much incentive to optimize things very much because everyone's making money. And this is the thing, like the, the analogy I'm going to give is like, uh, compare this to Bitcoin mining, where if you're an inefficient Bitcoin miner, you will go out of business. If you're, you know, you have to be like sort of hyper efficient and very, very good at what you do in order to survive. As a home builder, you don't, you don't actually need to be that great. <laughs> like you, you just... You just because there's just so much demand, you you could just sort of be like mediocre and still make tons of money. There there's not enough pressure to optimize or innovate or you know make things more efficient because the way that real estate is, it's heavily regulated. So you kind of have to build a certain way. And and you know, getting a permit, for example, to do like a 3D printed house is like going to be very, very difficult in almost every jurisdiction because the, you know, people in charge won't want it like that. There, there just isn't that much room for any of that because, you know, there, there's all this artificial money just sort of coming into real estate. So, you know, all of that combined and, and despite all that, you know, homes have at least like building materials and technology. I mean, people live in like much more per person square footage than they were like 50 years ago, because, you know, that that's the thing that's most important to them. 
I, there, there is some innovation there. There could be a lot more innovation, I think, what, as you sort of optimize and put natural market forces toward it. And yeah, I think it'll get more affordable on two fronts. One, it'll be more affordable because there won't be the artificial store of value demand. But there's two, there's this uh, other sort of direction of innovation and better materials and you know, things that last longer and things like that, which which come as a result of a more Bitcoin standard, people are just not going to pay for crappy built houses. They're going to pay for the ones that are going to last a long time and that they can pass down to their children. And I, I, I think that's the those are the two sort of like opposing forces that eventually make housing way more affordable than it is now. P, P, you're muted still. Oh my God. Thanks for, uh, for letting me know. You're saying that basically as we move closer to a Bitcoin standard, there will be stronger incentive to use longer lasting building materials? Yeah. I mean, not just like having longer lasting real estate, but also, you know, just better tech construction techniques and stuff like that. It, well, so what, one interesting anecdote that I, I read about recently that that struck me was towards the late Roman empire. They wanted to build like new buildings, except like a lot of the knowledge on how to build those buildings, like, like were lost. So what they ended up doing was, you know, taking parts from old buildings and making them again to, to make new buildings. Oh shit. Like, cause, cause they, they just didn't, they kind of stopped innovating because of all the, the dilution and rent seeking and all that stuff. Wow. Like, doesn't it feel a little bit like we're going in that direction, especially with something like airlines, right? Like airplanes have not improved in 50 years, like at all. I mean, yeah, maybe you get Wi-Fi on board now, but, but really yeah, but that like, took like uh, decades. Wi-Fi had been yeah. around for like 10 <laughs> years before they were like, all right, fine, maybe. But, the, but the actual planes, they don't go faster. They don't, you know, they don't have a larger capacity. They don't like, it, it's, it's the same technology, right? Like it. And it's we we've lost a lot of and we you alluded to this earlier with the petroleum engineers versus the number of people drafted into Major League Baseball. I mean, we're we're gonna start losing some of the innovative ideas and like because there's so much of a brain drain into rent seeking careers. I mean, hmm. most of them are going into Wall Street and doing being investment bankers instead of Lockheed Martin to improve you know jet engines or to come up with a completely new design that's like much faster and runs on like a different kind of fuel or, you know, uranium or something, you know, like these, these are all possible. Just no one's, we're, we're just completely stagnant on, on those fronts because of fiat money. There, there's a, and I imagine that's the case for housing as well. There, there are probably way better ways to do stuff. It's just, you know, the, the people that are building, build exactly what they know. And that's it. There, there isn't sort of like innovation going into that. You're not putting brains towards that. The, the brains are all going towards how do I get people to click a few more ads? You know, that, that, that's what they're doing instead of how do I make this industrial material like last longer and easier and mold more moldable and easier to deploy and all that. Like th those are things that would actually improve housing tremendously but instead you know all, all those brain cells are going towards 
how do I extract like a few more cents from this guy, from each viewer of this article? Or how do I get them more addicted to porn so they'll pay us more money? Or how do I, you know, make this game more addictive so they'll buy all the, you know, trinkets that go along with it? Like that, this is what financialization does. It's, 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 it encourages this sort of like rent seeking behavior which doesn't necessarily add very much. The, the things that would add a ton, you know, like making a nuclear powered supersonic jet or, you know, I don't want, know, like I want housing that uh, or a 3D printed house that can go up in a few days and last for a hundred years. Like, like th those are things that I think would be very useful, but very few people are working on them, relatively speaking. Most people would, uh, a lot of those people are instead you know, hawking altcoins or, you know, being an investment banker or uh, I don't know, like just very rent seeky positions that don't do anything that that's what they're focused on. And that so it's, you know, it's ultimately kind of meaningless to go do those, but they pay well because fiat subsidizes them. So that's that that's the state that we're in. Interesting. Well, we're almost out of time. I, I feel like the, I mean, I agree with you on, on a lot of what you're saying. I feel like maybe there's, you're painting with like slightly too broad of a brush around the categories of things that are like, you know, like fiat incentivized. I feel like, you know what, we, we, <laughs> I was going to ask you like a question that would have taken like 15 minutes to answer, but I, I guess you where do, do you draw the, <laughs> where do you draw the line? Like, how are you determining what is sort of like rent seeking specifically because of a broken monetary system, which we clearly mm. live in one, right? Versus things that are, I don't, I don't, I don't know, like th things that are basically just market dynamic and, and I, I'm kind of going in the direction of like subsidized industries or industries, as you said, that are like bailed out constantly versus mm -hmm. non ones. But I don't know how to draw that distinction. I'm curious if you. Yeah. And I, I've thought about this a lot and I, I've come to the conclusion there's there's not a very easy or clear line that you can draw because everything is interrelated. The reason why people want to play video games and watch porn all day is because their jobs are meaningless and don't contribute anything. And their, their moral character has been debased along with the money. And that in turn incentivizes more rent-seeking sort of jobs where you know people are making stuff that don't contribute anything. So it, it's all sort of like interrelated and it's hard to say exactly how much is exactly from fiat money, how much is just sort of like general moral character de degradation from the degradation of money and how much of it is just, you know, partisan politics or, you know, other things or the effects of technology or whatever. I, I mean, all of it is related. I, and I, I, I believe that, you know, character degrades along with the money. I believe that, you know, materials and everyday things that we use degrades along with the money and, and everything else. So it, it's, you know, where do you, where do I don't, I don't really draw a line. I, I do know that fiat has at least something to do with all of these things. And it, it, if it's not completely responsible, it at least contributes to it significantly through sort of at, at the very least a high time preference behavior of everybody, which, which is the result of the money debasing so quickly. So you know, all that is to say that, you know, I, I just sort of do paint it with a broad brush because I think it's going to hit 
more so than it doesn't. You know, I could be wrong and I, I'm happy to be happy for people to point out where I am. But, you know, the, the, the series of articles has all been about, okay, well, let's think about this. How does fiat money affect this thing? And you can almost trace everything back to it. It's kind of sad, but it really is sort of a root of uh, all kinds of evil. Yeah. All right. I think I've exited the matrix. I think I'm, I'm now back. I talked too much. You've about, come back to us. I talked too much about the Wachowski twins and I got caught up in the matrix. But Jimmy, I do want to just, I, I don't mean to like, just go for the biggest story on Twitter, but you know, we are a ratings driven show and that's how P and I collect our sats. What, what was your initial gut punch reaction or just, did you laugh audibly loud when you heard about Elon Musk and Twitter selling their Bitcoin? No, I mean, I didn't laugh or anything. It was like, just sort of, I, I think this was his move the whole time was whenever he would be in financial trouble, let's go and do this, right? Like, and he expected Bitcoin to be going up in price, so he'd look like a genius and, you know, people would be more, more forgiving of what happened, but he had to sell at a loss, so he looks a little bit more foolish now. But the, I, I think this was his plan the whole time was to dampen the volatility. And it, in actuality, if you think about like Tesla stock price versus versus Bitcoin, I think he actually made out better storing it in Bitcoin than in Tesla stock. So. You know, if you think of it that way, like the alternative, I guess, would have been to do like a buyback of the stock or something like that, which would have essentially been that. And it, it would have it probably would have gone worse. But but yeah, I mean, he he's uh, he's one of those uh, rent seekers, I think. <laughs> like, if you think about it, he's gotten so many subsidies off of, for his cars and stuff. And I mean, his company's not doing very well. You know, like they without that Bitcoin sale, they would have lost a lot of money. Of course, they also have a lot of money, but yeah, I mean, this is these these are fiat companies. Like, it's it's just kind of crazy. I, I did a calculation for Coinbase the other day, right? Like, just trying to figure out like what their financial situation is, and I don't know. Maybe maybe this will get your ratings, but let's let's just do the math, right? They did an eighteen percent layoff, and they gave some numbers. It was like twelve hundred people, something like that. So that if you if you do the math, that means that they're left with about five thousand people. 5,000 people in Silicon Valley. Now, let's just like estimate how much that's going to cost. You know, some of them are going to be call center people, but others are also going to be like principal engineers and stuff. So, you know, all with healthcare, 401k, stock grants and options and all that stuff. Let's just say that's about 200,000 per person. It's about a billion dollars a year just in personnel. A billion dollars, right? And that that doesn't include servers, regulatory stuff, advertising. You know, all all the software licenses you have to pay, all the buildings that you're renting, all the perks that you're giving to your engineers, including the cafeteria food and whatever. It doesn't include any of that. So, and you you include all that, it's like, huh. Yeah, I can I can see why they're they're probably going to be more compliant with the state going forward because they have six billion dollars, but uh, but you know like they they have a huge personnel cost, they have a lot of other costs. They've probably taken out loans and things like that. Like, I I, I think we're kind of seeing a company turn into a fiat company in real time, and you know like they're they're starting. 
There was a story earlier today about, you know, somebody doing insider trading. I will bet you anything that this person will be punished like crazy. And they will put in all sorts of controls and do whatever the state tells them because they're, they, they, they're going to need it. <laughs> they, they need to comply with the state in order to have a chance at, at staying relevant. And, you know, the, this is the fate of every, every fiat company is uh, in a sense, like Coinbase was, you know, 2013, they were like the only place you, uh, reasonable place that you could go buy Bitcoin. And there, and Brian Armstrong at that time was a Bitcoin, you know, enthusiast and stuff. He's since like sort of slowly gone down the altcoin route. And now they're probably going to become like a very fiat company. But that that's sort of like the evolution of things. And that's that's how things happen. So one thing, I mean, I'll just say that the thing I'll push back on, Jimmy, is I don't think Tesla is just now becoming a fiat company to your point. Like they, they, they they were fiat when they hatched out of the egg and long before Elon even purchased them, they were forged in the fires of fiat hell. Like (laughs) the only reason they've ever been profitable is because of the all ESG and and all the carbon credits. And I, I brought this up Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the show. This will be the, the final point I make before Jimmy, I give you the last word. This is exactly what happened in the Q3 yeah, Q3 2021 earnings reports when they came in at a fucking loss and they were selling carbon credits. And the only reason they were profitable and their earnings came in profitable was because they sold carbon credits in the same way that they would have had negative earnings this last quarter if they didn't sell Bitcoin. So Mm. the fiat company can be damned hell for all I care. But Jimmy, final word. Well, I mean, my final word today is, hey, like it, it is kind of like a weird time in our space right now because for whatever reason, Ethereum is pumping. And I don't know, it, it always pains me when Ethereum pumps like this and, and almost drags Bitcoin along with it. It feels like it's an artificial pump. A normal pump looks like where Bitcoin leads everything else and then things catch up later because you get people that are FOMOing or something like that. So it's a little weird. So it's not, something something doesn't smell right in the market right now. And I, I'm not sure what it is, but, you know, we, we just sort of have to wait and see, which is basically the virtue of every holder. You're supposed to wait and see. You're supposed to have patience. You're supposed to not get affected so much by day-to-day news like Elon did this or you know, Coinbase employee did this or whatever. The key to being a Bitcoiner, Bitcoin holder, is to sort of let that all wash over you. And, and, you know, there are sort of things that I think would bother you if you were more anxious about things. But if you've been saving in Bitcoin, you have some savings. You have a runway. You can relax. And you can start thinking about other stuff like the long term, like what you're going to do 20 years from now, what sort of legacy you want to leave. And those are honestly way more interesting and meaningful questions for your life rather than, is Bitcoin going to go up next week, which is what every show focuses on. And I get it. It's it's more fun to talk about that. But it's going to be more meaningful to talk about what you're going to do in 30 years. So I encourage you, all the you, you two and all the viewers that are watching this show, think about what's going to happen in 30 years and what sort of legacy you want to leave when at the end of your life. As someone who is a host of a show that talks about what is the price of Bitcoin going to be next week. I could not agree with you more. (laughs) That is the, you, 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 you hit the nail on the head, 
Jimmy, the right question to ask is where do we want to be in, you know, at the very lowest, I would say a year and more likely 30. Hmm. Thank you so much for joining us, man. I always appreciate our chats. Yeah. Thanks for having me guys. It was fun. Absolutely. I want to remind everyone one final time that tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam are on sale. Prices go up in the near future. The censorship resistant issue of Bitcoin magazine is available in, I believe, Barnes and Noble and mm -hmm. is absolutely incredible. If you haven't checked it out, check it out. It's our best magazine yet. Really, really fantastic investigative journalism there. And, uh, that's all we got. We will see you tomorrow. Same time, same place. We're going to be doing news and notes for 30 minutes, and then we're going to dive over to Twitter spaces and have a conversation about Bitcoin, the Lightning Network, the insanity of the Bitcoin space right now. And we're going to be having that conversation with none other than Shinobi. So it'll be a fantastic time. I'm going, to all finally, I'm going to piss Shinobi off, but then also I'm definitely going to piss George off and say ticket prices are literally going up. They're negotiating right now. How do I say this? It's going to go up so much that the 10% discount code to use BM Live will not make the tickets cheaper than what they are today. I'll, I'll leave you with that, my friends. So lock <laughs> them in. First time hearing about it. They'll lock them in. They're going up. It's not going to be cheap. Come party with us in Amsterdam. Goodbye, my friends. Well, Adios, yeah. everyone. Yeah. See you later. Bye.